their sharkskin suits, bow ties and buttons, high top boots, driving the spikes in, blazing the rails, nailing the cuffs, in top hats and tails, fly away little bird, fly away, flap your wings, fly by night. The early Roman kings All the early Roman kings In the early, early morn Coming down the mountain Distributing the corn Speeding through the forest Racing down the track, you try to get away. They drag you back. Tomorrow is Friday. We'll see what it brings. Everybody's talking about the early Roman kings. And the meddlers, they buy and they sell. They destroyed your city, they'll destroy you as well. The lecherous and treacherous, a hair meant for leather, each of them bigger than all men put together. Sluggers and muggers, wearing fancy gold rings. All the women going crazy for the early Roman king. I can dress up your wounds with a blood clotted rag. I ain't afraid to make love to a bitch or a hag. If you see me coming And you're standing there Wave your handkerchief In the air I ain't dead yet My bell still rings I keep my fingers crossed Like the early Roman kings Strip you of life, strip you of breath, ship you down to the house of death. One day you will ask for me. There'll be no one else that you want to see. Bring down my fiddle, tune up my strings. I'm gonna break it wide open Like the early Roman kings I was up on Black Mountain The day Detroit fell 
They killed them all off And they sent them to hell Ding dong daddy You coming up short Gonna put you on trial In a Sicilian court I've had my fun I've had my flames Gonna shake them on down Like the early Roman kings This is podcast 150, entitled The Ancient Romans. And uh, it's actually going to be a serious talk about the um, mindset and the perspectives and, I guess you might say, the contribution of antiquity. Now, there's been a slight shift in my approach to the podcasts, which I'm sure will come tumbling down, tumbling, tumbling, very soon, but I got a little serious after the last podcast, which has received so many um, interesting uh, responses concerning 45 years of formal New Testament scholarship in 45 minutes. I began to go back to some of the things that I'd learned that have been uh, largely um, um, succeeded by or um, uh, superannuated by supersessionism by um, Edgar Allan Poe movies and The Bride of Frankenstein, which I fully grant are the superior uh, aspects of wisdom in this world. Nevertheless, I guess I was given um, primarily through my mother, actually, and her sending me to such outstanding institutions. It was a complete gift. I didn't have anything to do with it a really good education in regard to some of the sort of classic uh, building blocks of our culture, uh, even if they're not particularly emphasized or um, even uh, underlined or recognized today. They're there, whether we think they are or not. I immediately thought of the Roman wall at Carewent and Caerleon in um, uh, southeast Wales, which you drive by a 10-lane highway uh, across the... um, Bristol and Clifton and into Wales, and you'd never know in this vast modern um, highway system that uh, the UK has established in what was once a wild area, that within a mile of where you are uh, gunning your engine in vast uh, mega traffic are ancient Roman walls of Carewent and Caerleon, and that Arthur Machen developed his supernatural understanding of the horror of the Welsh hills and the Welsh coast and the ancient Romans only a mile from where you're zipping by. Now, I thought maybe I would give a little sort of a summary, maybe this is of interest to you, of... uh, kind of a lifetime of consideration, 62 years of uh, reflection, but in a very short span, a catena of 40 minutes concerning the ancient Romans. Now, the credentials there, I simply want to say it because it's interesting to me. I have in front of me the first book I ever read about the ancient Romans entitled The Story of the Roman People. This was kind of a children's uh, brief uh, 
Elementary History of Rome, as it's called, by Eva March Tapan, or Tappan. I think it's Eva March Tappan. And I wouldn't be surprised if she had been the headmistress at one point of the Brearley School in New York. But in any event, this 1938 classic, which I grew up with, actually it was, uh, I think, published in 1910, is a, a wonderful children's history of Rome. And then when we began at St. Albans within, uh, you know, within seconds of one's ninth birthday, there was glimpses into the long ago, which I'm holding, which had uh, focused on the ancient Romans, but also the Norsemen, the early Christians, uh, the Confucians, ancient uh, Chinese culture, and even later on Muslim culture. It was very much diverse by today's standards, but it was also, it never even occurred to us that it wasn't. But it did focus particularly on the world of the Spartans and the um, Athenians and the Peloponnesian War and then the ancient Roman hegemony and the great empire of the Romans and uh, right through the so-called Dark Ages. And in fact, they were Dark Ages. Now, um, so that was there. And then I'm looking at all sorts of other books, A Child's History of the World by V.M. Hillier. These were all books that told us the great story of the ancients. And whatever you may think of it now, I mean, you may be arrested on the phenomenon of Hurricane Katrina, which is very interesting and very um, kind of kind of a macroscope, microscope of many uh, uh, thoughts and uh, concerns uh, and experiences the present day. It's interesting that the ancient Romans uh, gave me at least so much of my childhood. And then, again, thanks to an education which I owe primarily to my mother, I went to a school in which we were learning Latin from the very earliest uh, ages. And I had six years of Latin in preparatory school and then four years of Latin in college, as well as four years of Greek in college, classical Greek. And my friend Lloyd had not only the Latin, to quote, uh, beyond the fringe, uh, but he also had uh, prep school Greek, which was a tremendous gift to uh, to him and to all who studied it, although at the time it, uh, it was only, uh, you know, it was, oh, are you kidding? Um, now, Let's talk a little bit, given all that, uh, and then at the PhD level in Germany where Latin is required and Greek is required to even matriculate for the doggone doctorate in theology. And you know, the funny thing is in Tübingen, when you have your tests in Latin and Greek, for which you have learned them in order to study the documents of the New Testament and the Church Fathers and the uh, medieval and also Reformational theology, a great deal of which was composed in Latin, you're never allowed to be examined um, on the Christian documents or the Christian-related documents. You are only allowed to be examined on classical Greek of uh, the 6th century and ancient Greek drama and ancient Greek meter and uh, ancient Greek history. Same with Latin. No church Latin. Entirely secular classical Latin or pre-Christian classical Latin. And that is, uh, isn't that interesting that you can't even start your degree in theology unless you've gotten your, as it were, pre-Christian uh, classical studies down. Oh, good God. But um, the result of that, as well as a, a, a number of summers thinking about this in one remarkable three-month period as the supervisor, as it turned out, through a sheer medical emergency involving someone else when I was the supervisor of a section of an archaeological uh, uh, dig in Aphrodisias in Anatolia near Ephesus. And that's a whole other thing where one became an epigrapher in spite of oneself. A lousy epigrapher, but at least I was trying. And I had a tremendous, uh, there was some um, 
there were some Viennese uh, graduate students who were extremely serious and thorough, and they helped one to learn some of the real techniques of uh, especially Greek language epigraphy in later antiquity. Now, let me say three things uh, on that basis. I hope I've got your interest, because sometimes people are a little more interested in this than they are in, um, you know, low straight jackets, uh, which, I mean, let's remember, low straight jackets always will um, be more important than what I'm talking about now, but... Um, the Greeks and Romans had have their have their say. Every dog has its day. And let's talk a little bit about uh, the Greeks and the Romans. And you'll notice that the preface to the entire cast was Bob Dylan's recent, and I think just magnificently worded, in some ways hilarious, um, song entitled "The Ancient Roman Kings." Well, there are three points I'd like to make the ancient Romans. Now, I'm not going to talk today about the ancient Greeks, although that may come up later because um, I'm a little more comfortable and more in tune simply because of the number of years, especially as a child with the languages in the ancient Roman thought world. Uh, the Greek thought world is a little more diverse. That is to say, it's, there's a little more to it. And there's, um, there's the strong philosophical tradition too, which although it exists in um, ancient uh, Roman culture, needless to say, uh, it, is, uh, it, it, is, it is a many, many lifetimes of study it can be given to the huge layers of depth in uh, classical Athenian and, um, well, let's call it classical Athenian, Golden Age Athens culture and post. And um, I'd like to talk today, really, about the ancient Romans. And uh, that's, you know, a reference to Monty Python. Now, there are three um, things about the ancient Romans, which I would like to say are sort of the summary of Pisi's perspective now, almost at age 63, uh, uh, on the ancient Romans. And this is what I would say about this very um, uh, this, uh, powerful and fundamental cultural strand that created the world, even if it didn't create the immigrant uh, plural world of 2013. It actually did because it made the Western world, it was one of the great um, kind of um, uh, uh, touchstones. What did someone say recently that they were faulting a Jane Eyre movie that is otherwise very good because the it mutes Jane Eyre's Christian faith, which is the uh, source of her independence or the the rock anchor of her uh, independence as a person as a woman. And I think that we, of course, I, you know that I believe we are muting uh, the uh, Christian aspect of the independence of, for example, American culture, which has created this dynamo that the whole world desperately wants to be a part of and actually be here with us. And I accept that. That's, that's a fact. But that was caused by the, um, the the, the the in my opinion a, a, some insights that came out of the Reformation and also which came out of Christianity which came out of Judaism which also came out of Greek thought and that is to say Christianity and also the um, power of the Roman uh, uh, imperial uh, mindset now the Roman imperial mindset and I'm not going to give you a, um, the dates and the times but I'm talking about the ancient Romans not the early Roman kings so much as the um, the uh, Augustan imperial Roman era and the uh, the uh, era of the 12 Caesars, <clears throat> the 
Brahmins are uh, a fascinating uh, group of uh, sensibilities because in their purest state, you might say, and you see this in um, sort of the great documents, for example, the Gallic Wars of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Gallia in Gallia, you know, uh, in uh, Julius Caesar, and you'll see it later, uh, quite a bit later in Tacitus, and you see it in... Uh, in um, the Aeneid, uh, and you certainly see it in Virgil, but you see it in all sorts of things I could talk about. The Romans, actually Virgil's not the best example of that, but the Romans um, were so focused on the here and now and a kind of a common sense task, and in a sense on a kind of exaggerated uh, spirit of duty that sort of worked without exceptions. There was a kind of lack of exception in the Romans sort of understanding this is the way it's done and this is the way it's not done. And if you don't do it the right way, you die. And yet you kill yourself, male and female. I mean, there are great stories of the, the famous virgin whose name escapes me, but there are about 10 trillion pictures of her uh, committing suicide rather than be violated or the famous example of the uh, ancient Roman king who insisted that his... Uh, his son be executed for um, not all that um, obvious an example of treason, but because it was the law, and he actually insisted that he the law be uh, completely imposed, even though it was his own beloved son. And the great Roman virtue is of him standing there uh, and uh, watching the judgment carried out without flinching. Or the famous example of the uh, of taking the oath and putting your hand in the uh, is it Scipio who does this, the Ope of Scipio Africanus, but it's the, the putting your hand in the fire and not flinching. I think Rembrandt actually did a picture of something like this. I may have that confused, but the idea is definite, that you put your hand in the fire and you grit your teeth and you, you, you let the hand be burned terribly without a, a squeal uh, because it is your duty to be I, utterly iron in your promise and steel, man of steel in your um, commitments. And you, what really is a promise. I mean, Americans talk about promise and they never mean it. I mean, every movie today has some guy promising something to somebody else who then immediately forgets the promise. But the Romans were not like that. So there was a kind of inflexible, but let's simply call it an, a kind of remarkable uniformity of the obligation and the promise that created a kind of um, absolute um, single-minded ability to, to accomplish things, coupled with a highly geometric um, and consistent uh, matter of um, of, of doing things that although it could have become, you know, consistency can become the old hobgoblin of, you know, you, you don't want that if it's going to um, undo you if you're fighting a war in Burma. But for the Romans, given the world around them, to be consistent and build straight roads was so completely new and unique and unheard of and never done in the Western world around the Medi what is called the Mediterranean Basin. You know, we always had to say that in classical studies. Well, you know, in, especially in Christian classical studies, you always had to be, show how smart you were. So you couldn't call it like a nuance. You couldn't call it the Mediterranean Sea. You had to call it the Mediterranean Basin. Good Lord. Bleh. Um I was. We have a bathroom, a toilet that won't flush uh, in a one in a lake uh, cottage, and uh, you have to constantly get a big pan and pour water into it after you've used the toilet in order to get it to flush because it will always run for uh, till Christ comes again, and. Um, where was I getting that? Oh, this, <laughs> that's a basin, you know. It's a basin you dump the water in, and it's a basin you use to put the water in. And, of course, the water gets spilled all over the back of the toilet, and it's unbelievable. But it's not the – you know, that's the basin. The Mediterranean Ocean uh, was an area in which Roman um, rational, uh, consistent sense of dutifulness and fairness – 
because they never judged unfairly, or almost never. Later on, obviously, with Nero and Caligula, but uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about what made Rome great, the spirit of the Seven Hills, you know. Um, what is it? Something, something at the bridge, you know, the thing by uh, uh, Macaulay. Horatio at the bridge by Thomas Babington Macaulay. That's the ancient Roman kings, the Roman consistency, uh, utterly steel-like uh, sense of duty and ability to go from one place to the other in a straight line, plus a kind of technical and engineering gift. We know about the aqueducts and we know about the bridges and we know about the Roman roads and we know about the um, construction mainly the roads in England. I mean, they're still the straightest roads in, in England today. And that's really true even now. It used to be a joke, and now it's still true. Um, this, uh, But the th- problem with the Romans, they were a little bit lacking in heart. We'll get to that in after a while, there was sort of a lacking in sentiment. They really were. They weren't like the Japanese of the samurai era, who on the one hand were utterly inflexible on the surface and had this extraordinary court etiquette and classification and uh, stratification of society and ritual, tea ceremony, etc. But the Romans had all that, but, uh, but, but they don't seem to have been sentimental. They, were, they sort of took great, great identity pride, as we might say today, in their ability to be non-touched by feelings. And this conquered the world or their world, and it gave their army an extraordinary leg up over all other armies except once in the, what is it, the... Um, that forest, the Teutoburger Forest uh, in Germany, where they it was not able. It's been done in movies, I think, in Gladiator, and I, there's another movie in which it is done. I think it's done actually in uh, the Fall of the Roman Empire, the Alec Guinness, you know, Stephen Boyd movie. They were defeated when really, really plucky troops sort of acted like Ewoks, you know, and and did things that they didn't expect completely. And also when they were surrounded by an alien landscape, and the Roman work, which would work in Syria perfectly against tribesmen or in Parthia slash uh, Armenia or in uh, uh, Idumea, Arabia, and the desert would not work as well in a landscape that was alien and also with really wily numbers of, uh, of uh, antagonists. But for the most part, it worked uh, brilliantly. So that's the ancient Romans. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the thought world of the uh, ancient Romans and then uh, and the ancient world itself, and then briefly about um, the thought world in relationship to the Internet today and attitude, and finally a word on Christianity, because that is in fact a uh, an important uh, – it, 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 it would be completely wrong to, uh, as many classicists have wanted to do over the centuries, with the exception of Gibbon, without – not a very – nice attitude towards Christianity, Gibbon understood it. Uh, But today people would tend to, you know, like in the movie Gladiator, you have people in the arena and people getting killed with no reference to Christianity, where in movies prior to 1960, the arena was always about the Christian martyrs. They always showed up. And that's not, the actual fact of the matter is that uh, Christianity did in fact make waves in the ancient Roman world. But um, I want to talk about that in just a minute because it's important to see the limitations of the ancient Roman issue, as well as, you might say, the uh, limitations of the Christian solution historically. The Roman world was, in addition to its, in the, what I've talked about so far, and its kind of steel concept of duty that permitted no deviation and was so brilliant and seems to have kind of... Um, 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 I, I always wonder where the emotion, the, the, the unconscious, would burst out under the pressure cooker of ancient Roman lives. I guess you could say it It comes out in the sort of raucous comedies of Plautus, maybe, um, but I, I'm not even sure there. I know it's in the Greeks, but I, I find it a little hard to find it in the Romans. Now, the however... 
the Romans were surrounded by culture, and they themselves were very interested in something called augury. And this is where I think, this is where to me the sort of kind of outlet for the Roman world comes. And uh, this is uh, of great interest even to me today. The Romans believed that the will of the gods, the gods, the place gods, the city gods, the city-state gods, the imperial gods, the the gods connected with people, place, and thing, the gods connected with luck, destiny, money, the gods connected with rivers, creeks, and the sea, the god collect, gods connected with the forest and the mountains and the valleys, and the gods collect, connected with sex, procreation, um, and even war, which was a mighty um, uh, um, real aspect of the ferris life, F-E-R-R-O-U-S, of the Romans. They were very, very uh, interested in augury. In other words, we say not a, uh, that is we, the Sermon on the Mount <laughs> says, that not a sparrow falls from the ground without it being known of your heavenly Father, and even the hairs on your head are numbered. Actually, the ancient Romans believed a little bit of uh, in common with Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, because they believed that your life was uh, kind of guided by augury. So, sorry, before a battle, before a kind of enterprise, before a uh, a, a voyage before a marriage, obviously, before a birth, before uh, an economic transaction, before any number of things that you might undertake in your life. You had to seek and listen for and watch for guidance from the spirit world. It, it, you might even not call it the spirit world, guidance from whatever wasn't in your control. And there was a kind of remarkable humility. So let's say a, right before you're about to do something, a feather falls to the ground from a duck that is flying over you, um, or a um, thunderclap uh, comes, or there is a uh, sudden uh, skidding of uh, birds over a pond, or uh, a cow, <coughs> sorry, moos, or a, 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 a pig drops over, or um, th that would tell you whether you should do a thing or not. That would that would sort of align you with something bigger than yourself, which is kind of the pathway of your destiny, your fate. Uh, this uh, would be specifically undertaken as a kind of religious ritual where it got objectified, where you would um, slit open uh, a bird and examine the entrails of a bird. This is similar to palmistry. You'd examine the entrails of a bird, or you'd examine um, you'd 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 kill an ox, and you'd examine some something about the ox, or you would discover that some sacrificial animal was marred in some way, or uh, any number of things. But it was characteristically you would you would dissect uh, the uh, body of a living creature, an animal, and uh, kill it, and then dissect it. And from what you saw in the um, what you found when you slid open the belly of the of the of the turkey, um, you would, uh, somebody I know saw some wild swans recently, and I said, oh my gosh, what a fascinating thing. What does a wild swan do? But in any event, um, that would give you an indication. So you were constantly attempting to align yourself. So anything you ever did, you didn't just go ahead and, you know, I'm, I'm all over it. You know, Bill Murray, I'm all over this. You were not all over it. Uh, you'd be going on the, uh, deciding whether to go to Sicily, so say, let's say Segesta, the great temple town of Segesta, or you were uh, maybe wanted to um, 
stop, um, uh, you know, you may, maybe uh, you, you were wondering whether you should go through the Straits of Messina, and you'd look and you'd see, you'd look for something, something that happened before the sun set or something that happened before the sun rose or something that you could see or something that happened to a member of your crew or some odd thing at night, and you would say, aha, that gives me the direction that I need. And so the ancients were filled with fears. They were filled with anxieties over nature and weather, <laughs> what's changed. They had the equivalent of 18 weather channels uh, out of a total um, um, channel system of 22 cable channels. 18 were for the weather and four were for the um, intestines of a goat. <laughs> you know, that's really the way it was. And so you... Um, you were constantly looking to something to have guidance. So it was very humble. We would say, of course, superstitious. But when you read ancient documents, and I spent a whole um, semester uh, in uh, a year after I graduated from Harvard at uh, – actually, no, I lie. I spent a whole semester in my senior year in college there um, – under Dita Georgi, studying Hellenistic Romance literature, that is late Greco-Roman literature of sort of uh, lovers um, in sh being shipwrecked, the idea being that it somehow connected with the Luke Acts accounts uh, in the book of Acts, the voyages of St. Paul. And so... Um, you, you, to try to get some deeper understanding of what was in the Acts of the Apostles by looking at these tremendous, um, several uh, published tales from that era in Greco-Roman antiquity, but completely non-Christian, what used to be called pagan um, sources. And uh, you would find this always true. There was this tremendous sense of needing to sacrifice, needing to expiate, needed to atone, um, and also reading the signs all around you that today could be called superstitious, whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist. You know, atheists didn't do very well in ancient culture. And as a matter of fact, there were very few of them. Lucretius was one, although I'm not sure he would have said he was an atheist. But not by the standards of his time, Lucretius is the great atheist. But there were others. There were others who simply thought without reference to any kind of causation external to themselves. And that's commonly called uh, Epicureanism. And, um, but I would say most of them were actually agnostic in questions of augury. And sometimes they could become very jumpy when faced with uh, kind of natural phenomena. So... Um, Let's simply say that the thought world of ancient times, there was this huge attitudinal world. Plus, of course, they had, because of the gods being all around, they had, everything was personified. I mean, the, 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 the river was personified by God. The, the um, uh, unpredictability of a trip to a forest was personified by wood nymphs. Sex was heavily personified by um, temple prostitution and all sorts of... Uh, of um, of temples of Aphrodite, uh, the prostitution, it's really not proper to call it prostitution, although it, it functioned that way, it looked that way, it was really an attempt to kind of come to terms with the sexual power that they all knew uh, automatically was uh, the number one sort of governing aspect of the mind, body, humane, human, human being. So um, everything was personified, and uh, so that uh, gave a kind of, ooh, thing to all of life. Now, what I'm trying to get at is there was a kind of unseen attitudinal thought world in addition to the sort of let's build a Roman road perfectly that will last forever and people in England will come and see it in summer of 2013 in near Blackburn, Yorkshire, you know, on the, the what is it called? The Blackstone Edge up there. Mary and I spent like three hours trying to find the ancient Roman road, which is one of the best preserved ancient Roman roads in England, the Blackstone Edge in Lancashire. And we never found it. We were so frustrated. It's kind of near the Brontes, or it's to say it's in the Bronte type of country. And um, 
a little bit to the left. But the problem with the, uh, it's like us now. So, so let's say America, we, we are unbelievably Roman in our sort of, duh, 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 you know, let's do it. We do, duh, 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 no exceptions. Duh, duh, duh. Uh, you know, the way we do airline security is very Roman. It's totally thorough. It's the Dick Cheney principle. The, you know, the, if there's 1% possibility of something going wrong, we're all over it. Well, that's really very comparable to the way the ancient Romans thought. And I'm going to go on actually for about 45 minutes of not because this material is, is uh, I want to finish this particular sort of talk. And, uh, but, but you can you know, cut it into two if you like, and then we have to hear from Dylan at the end because he understands. Now, um, let's talk for a second about uh, the thought world. So we are in Afghanistan. I mean, we, we cover our troops. You know, every soldier is like a walking tank today. You know, nothing can go wrong. You know, there's no place in the groin where the enemy can stick a, a harpoon in you and kill you by hitting the, the right artery. You know, um, you're completely covered. But we have the Internet, you know, and we're 24-7. We're listening to iPhones. What is that? Um, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker the other day of all these earbuds, earbuds all put to, earbuds all in a huge, complicated mass, and I think it's called Gordian earbuds. Well, um, so on the one hand, we're you know no exceptions, yes sir, you know, sir, stand by the car, sir, sir, put your hands, sir, um, do you mind if I examine your luggage, sir? Uh, all that? Are you kidding? Do you mind? I mean, if you say no, you know, you all go to Guantanamo, but um, so you don't, but. Then you have the uh, music that everybody's listening to or the anger that's on the Internet. So you juxtapose the extraordinary rage within, say, a thousand comments on the CNN belief blog, which I myself have experienced recently, like 1,200 angry, obscene comments about an article in which I figured concerning Stephen King, which uh, of people who've never met me, don't know anything about me, and didn't read the article, (laughs) and didn't even read the literal meaning of the quotes that the reporter had accurately portrayed. And when I called the reporter on the CNN belief blog, I said, what gives with these horrible, excretory, obscene comments? He said, yeah, he said, it's the worst part of my job. He said, uh, uh, the anger that comes out on the belief, here's belief, you know, belief blog for CNN. He said, it's unbelievable. Well, so you have, we know that on the one hand, we have airline security, or on the one hand, we have roads, you know, uh, with with, um, everything's controlled. I mean, you drive in roads in um, um, near in, southern, in northern Virginia around Washington, and you don't even can't see, even see to the left and to the right. The, the, the traffic is so monitored with these huge concrete walls and nets all around you, as it were, that you can't see to the left or to the right. I mean, it's, it, you, you're like in a tube, not in a, in a Route 95. It's like a tube. It's extraordinary, but it's all part of a kind of, that's the Roman thing. But on the other hand, if you knew the internal world of everybody who's driving in these HOV lanes, you'd know they were all listening to incredibly angry music or, or thinking angry thoughts, especially the men, or thinking all sorts of thoughts, unbelievable thoughts. So there's this, this inner kind of attitude, invisible world of the earbuds or of the video games or of the you know, whatever it is you're watching on your private internet or whatever it is you're thinking about or whatever movies you're going to or whatever programs that you're, that excite you. And then there's the, um, the conditions of incredible limitation and constraint and force and order. So, um, really for the ancient Romans, the equivalent of the world within the angry person today, who on the one hand is so completely forced into a certain habit of behavior where everything is told you and you're 
constantly told what to do and so forth. And that, I think you'll have to admit, is certainly true if you open your eyes to it. You can admit it, duck it, which is great. Jack Kerouac said, always duck what the world is telling you. Stay below the radar screen. But whatever you do, then you have an internal world. And with the Romans, so you have your, your perfect Roman road, you know, the, the, what is it, Water Street, or what's the famous street, Fish, the, the streets, uh, they're called in uh, England, there are three, four of them, and they're north, south, east, and west on the one hand, uh, and then you have uh, the augury. Um, and you don't even want to go, you know, you don't even want to commute to Chichester. You don't even want to go 15 miles from your little village in Chichester, or to, to Chichester. What was Chichester called? Camelodunum? Am I wrong about that? It was, was Chichester called Camelodunum? Whatever it was, you don't even, I think that may have been St. Albans, what is now St. Albans. No, that was Verulamium. Anyway, you don't even want to go to your little town in the second century uh, AD because uh, we, without an augur and without watching the weather, not for its ability to stop you, but for its ability to tell you what is true beneath the surface. So you can identify then with the Roman world on the one hand, this uh, the sort of look at the Arch of Constantine or the Arch of Titus in Rome and then compare it to the uh, priestcraft and the Vestal Virgins and the augury legions of augur, augury consulting augurists, uh, augural priests in the uh, um, colleges of priests in Rome at the time. And you have a very uh, comparable situation to, to uh, our American uh, marine dressed as he is for uh, combat in uh, Afghanistan on the one hand and what he listens to or watches when he gets back uh, to camp furthest out or whatever it is. Razor's Edge. So that really will identify with you the interesting and fascinating bifurcation of attitude in the ancient Roman world. Now, I can say a lot more, but I want to say one more thing. I want to say about uh, something about um, Christianity because the very fact that you had this uh, duality in the ancient Roman world, and not to mention the Greek world, but that's another subject. It really is, and I'll think about doing one on that. It's a subject I love, but the first I thought I'd do is the ancient Romans. Um, oh, by the way, if if you read Edith Hamilton's great book, The Sage of Baltimore, Edith Hamilton's book, The Roman Way, you'll get this very, very powerfully and wonderfully stated. For me, it came through Eva March Tappan, but for others in the 50s, and uh, uh, it, it comes through the Roman way. These women really understood what they were talking about. And by the way, um, so did uh, um, um, Edith Hamilton also understood about uh, Christianity. Matter of fact, she wrote a book, not only a book about the Hebrew prophets, but she wrote a book about Christ. That is very interesting, as much for what it says about Edith Hamilton, the Baltimore sage, the classicist, who really, really knew her stuff, in my opinion. And she also knew the mythological, supernatural, um, you know, forces aspect of this world. But she also was able, as a, as a recovering Presbyterian, uh, she said that, she was able to uh, understand a lot about Christ and his contribution. Now, in the book called A Story of the Roman People, and we're almost finished, here is a paragraph on page 181 by Eva March Tappan. It is because these great writers lived in the times of Augustus that his reign is called the Golden or Augustan Age of Latin Literature. The reign is also marked by the closing of the gates of the Temple of Janus. In war times, they, these were always open, and the Romans had carried on wars so constantly that the gates had been closed only twice in 700 years.
While Augustus ruled, the gates of Janus were closed three times, slash, that's the Pax Romana. There was peace, unlike today, where we're, we live from wars, and the ancient Romans did that, as you've just heard. Um, there was the Pax Romana. While Augustus ruled, they were closed three times, continues Eva March Tappan at the end of this chapter. It was during one of these times, when the world was at peace, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, she then goes on to talk about Tiberius. <laughs> but that's very powerful. And we have a similar uh, sentence, you might say, in the opening, or is it the closing? I think it's the opening paragraphs of Thornton Wilder's remarkable book, of which I have an original edition that was owned by my grandfather. Um, uh, what is it called? Wait a minute. Um, oh, come on. It's... Uh, it's the wonderful one, the one about classics. I'll get it back to you on that. But the wonderful one about the woman uh, who is such a brilliant person uh, on the island in the Roman world right before Christ is born. But Eva March Tappan did well to do that. She wouldn't, today you wouldn't do it. I mean, like you see a Roman movie about the ancient Romans, they won't talk about the Christians. But that's from Animus. That's simply not the case. The ancient Romans made huge waves, especially as a result of the persecution uh, under Nero in 6970. Is that the right date or is it 6465? Look that up. But under the Neronian persecutions, because of a variety of historical forces and scapegoating, the uh, uh, witness of the early Christians in the city of Rome sort of came to light in a way that was very disturbing and kind of world upside down turning. It took many, uh, several centuries for it to, to climax, obviously, at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 under Constantine, who gets such a bad press, but let's not talk about him, but um, from 65, 70, 69 to 312 is a long time, but we know very definitely from the histories of the time, the secular histories, that the Romans began to make, the Christians began to make waves. Now, why did the Christians uh, draw converts? They didn't just draw converts from uh, Jews. As a matter of fact, most of their converts, the vast majority of their converts in a very early phase, not the first, but in the second phase of the Christian uh, movement after the, uh, uh, the events of Easter and Pentecost and the death of Christ on Good Friday, they began to draw converts from non-Jewish backgrounds because they had heart. There was a kind of love, L-U-V, that actually was present. It's not a, that's not an exaggeration. Coupled with this sense that people could have a kind of new beginning through what was called the forgiveness of sins. That, that actually was in place, and we hear about it because we get it in garbled words through historians like Josephus and Tacitus and a few of the others, and then later some of the very earliest post-New Testament documents about fellowship and the meetings of the poor people together and the breaking down of barriers between men and women and rich and poor and black and white and Jew and Gentile, although that was the one that was the most, um, um, was the first really to re-erect itself uh, in many ways for all kinds of other reasons. But it wasn't in the system initially. And so the um, kind of barrier-breaking sense of love that was especially um, 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 uh, embodied in the burial culture, because in those days the poor people couldn't get buried uh, appropriately or with, with, with love and with, um, with reverence towards the earthly remains of those they loved and themselves. And so they would sort of be buried in fields without any kind of protection. And it was just awful. Like the, they'd be carrying, the bodies would be carrying. And the English, um, the <laughs> the uh, Christians uh, formed their uh, converts, or the churches formed themselves into kind of burial societies to take care of 
the dead. And that was an incredible service for people in the uh, poor people, and most people were poor, and uh, especially people who had no roots. And there was a lot of movement in those days because of slavery. A lot of people had no roots, no geographical roots. There was no people. They, they didn't have people. You know, my people are from Central Florida. You know, sir, nothing. So uh, the church took that over because it had such a heart for people who had nothing. And that is to say, no real identities that were uh, allowed to be expressed in the way they reverently uh, um, uh, uh, disposed of or took care of the earthly remains of their departed beloved. So that was the sort of foothold unconsciously. It just happened. It was a need that was met because Christianity by nature was compassionate. It just was. It may not have had all sorts of other problems, which I'm writing about in a book I'm doing, as well as its great virtues, but it had one great virtue. This meant that the ancient Roman... Um, combination of inflexible steel-like devotion and duty on the one hand, which had its very fine um, uh, and powerful uh, um, sort of aspect, and yet its inability to deal with the tremendous contingency of life, which was seen by this massive culture, culture of augury, um, was for the first time kind of brought together uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, existential terms. In the first beginning gropings after some kind of uh, group uh, reality of the fellowships or societies of the early Christian dispossessed. And that's really true. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And um, that is why uh, Eva March Tappan, uh, and also the author of The Child's History of the World, V.M. Hill, Hillier, or V.M. Hillier, is proper to sort of throw the howler in in this day under the Pax Romana of the Emperor Augustus, uh, Jesus was born at Bethlehem of Judea. That is a legitimate statement of the... Now, people will say it later became a canker or a worm undermining Roman order and civilization. I'm not saying it's not. But I am saying that that uh, revealed something that was definitely missing in the ethos, the life, and the interactions of uh, both Roman citizens and those uh, who supported the citizens in the large and extraordinary outreach uh, and systematic um, uh, peaceful um, sovereignty of the Roman Empire. Thank you very much, and here's Bob Dylan. Shock skin suits, bow ties and buttons, high top boots, driving the spikes in, blazing the rails, nailing the cuffs, in top hats and tails, fly away, little bird, fly away, flap your wings, fly by night. The early Roman kings All the early Roman kings In the early, early morn Coming down the mountain Distributing the corn Speeding through the forest Racing down the track, you try to get away. They drag you back. Tomorrow is Friday. We'll see what it brings. 
Everybody's talking about the early Roman king. The peddlers and the meddlers, they buy and they sell. They destroyed your city, they'll destroy you as well. The lecherous and treacherous, a hair meant for leather, each of them bigger than all men put together. Sluggers and muggers, wearing fancy gold rings. All the women going crazy for the early Roman king. Dress up your wounds with a blood clotted rag. I ain't afraid to make love to a bitch or a hag. If you see me coming and you're standing there, wave your handkerchief in the air. I ain't dead yet, my bills still ring. Keep my fingers crossed Like the early Roman kings I can strip you of life Strip you of breath Ship you down To the house of death One day you will ask for me. There'll be no one else that you wanna see. Bring down my fiddle, tune up my strings. I'm gonna break it wide open like the early Roman kings. On Black Mountain, the day Detroit fell, they killed them all off and they sent them to hell. Ding dong, daddy, you're coming up short. Gonna put you on trial in a Sicilian cause. I've had my fun, I've had my flames. Gonna shake them on down Like the early Roman kings 